Hello and welcome to another podcast from Rotary Scripture Circles. This is Jennifer Schillinger, the director of Scripture Circles and the host for the podcast. And we are, of course, joined today by Noah Allman, our rabbi in resident. Hello, Jennifer. <laughs> How are you doing today? He's a podcast voice. What are you talking about? This is NPR voice. <laughs> and that other voice, the other NPR voice, is Ethan Zahn, who's the lead pastor at Heartland Community Church. Hello. Welcome, Ethan. I'll also put on my NPR voice. It's maybe not as strong as Noah's. Yeah, it's very soothing, guys. It's really great. <laughs> that will ease people into the topic today, because we're talking about Mount Horeb, which is... Um, I'm so excited for us to be talking a little bit more about this mountain. I think it's really interesting in the text that I feel like um, places in the Bible are often characters in the text. I think they hold so much meaning. Um, they help history. And, you know, just like when we were talking about names and how names of people can um, allude to their identity, I think also the names of places can really illuminate a little bit about the space that they're holding and the role that that place is serving in the narrative of the text. And so I'm really excited for us to talk more about that. Very nice. So Horeb, uh, as you said, where we're looking at here today, um, we first see uh, Horeb in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Um, What usually translates some variation of uh, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, Varying translations. Okay, so Horeb um, is what's described here as the mountain of God. And this is the first time we're we're reading about this mountain. Um, And so, as you said, Jennifer, when the decision um, comes to translate scripture, they simply sounded out the names of all, not just, as you said, the people, but also the places and the mountains. And one of the things that can be helpful, actually, especially looking through um, the, throughout scripture and especially people's time in the wilderness to unpack the names of like different wildernesses because different wildernesses have different names. And then it really illuminates, as you said, a different dimension or dynamic to what each wilderness is. Um, and we actually frequently know the name meanings of these names. Sometimes they're not Hebrew words, but often they are. Um, and same with mountains, uh, different mountains have different meanings. And so um, it's just super helpful to go like, ah, that's the name of this mountain. And therefore, what should I be clued into of what's happening in the passage? What's 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 the what's being hinted to? What's what's being said on a deeper level of what's going on in this place? Um, so Horeb here, uh, Choreva in Hebrew, we'll say Horeb in English, and Choreva uh, is a, is a conjugated form of the word Cherev. Cherev uh, would be the root word here of Choreva in Hebrew. Cherev is the root. Most words in Hebrew having a three-letter root. Um, in this word. Uh, has a three-letter root. And the root of the word that they're translating, um, just sounding out into Horeb, the root word in Hebrew is the word cherev, and cherev literally means sword. Sword. And choreva, uh, the conjugated form of the word cherev, um, choreva in Hebrew literally means death and destruction. The thought of what comes from the, the end of the sword, death and destruction. So, when we're talking about the mountain of God, it's the mountain of death and destruction. Ethan, you're smiling. This is very metal. (laughs) 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 Could you really could do a metal song off that, right? Like (laughs) mountain of God, like death and destruction. Um, so the mountain of death and destruction, and then 
as you talk about Jennifer, okay, so what's happening in this passage, right? This is the mountain of death and destruction. What's about to happen in this passage? Well, Moses is going to have an encounter with um, God, the burning bush. Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, and in the encounter with God, God's going to tell Moses to do what? You know, set the people free? Go down to Egypt, set the people free, and then do what? Bring them back. Bring them back where? Here. Here to this mountain, and... Yeah. Do what? Worship. Worship. Okay, come back to this mountain, worship God, and then do what? Letter? Go to that land of the oh, okay. all the different ites, the region of right. filling the blanks of all the ites, right? Okay, yeah. so God says, why don't you go down to Egypt, free the people, come back to this mountain, worship me, and then go to this region of all this land. Okay, so what's Moses' life look like as he comes to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? What's he doing? Shepherd. Shepherd of? Flock. The flock. Uh, in the wilderness, yeah. and he's also what else? What else? If, how might he identify himself? How might he understand himself or see himself? He's all husband, father. It's kind of old. He's eighty years old. <laughs> okay, he's eighty years old. He's pretty old. Uh, he's a husband. He's a father. He's also a a, a shepherd. shepherd. He also has a pretty important um, reference in verse one. Uh, he is he's a he is a father and a husband and a son-in-law a son-in-law and I mean what does it mean to be a son what does it mean to be a daughter what does it mean to be a child because I think oftentimes when we think relationally we tend to put a lot of value on on father and brother and husband and things like that and I don't know that we oftentimes think about what does it mean to be a good son or a good daughter mm-hmm. and how to do mm-hmm. those rolls well but it's a whole other conversation right but like okay he's the son-in-law of jethro and jethro we know the high priest of midian right so yeah. he jethro is the priest of midian he's the son-in-law of the priest of midian okay so he's a shepherd of the flock in the wilderness he's a husband he's a dad he's a son you think as a moses being a hebrew jethro jethro being a priest of midian did the midianites not circumcise their kids because moses didn't Moses didn't. Yeah. And it seemed weird that Moses' wife thought it was like a one of a barbaric practice or something. I don't know what she thought in that moment, but it's it's just interesting thinking like Jethro seemed like kind of a godly man. And doesn't seem like he's practiced that. And to your point about the oddness of it, right? Because he is a Midianite, and the Midianites are direct descendants of Abraham right. post his circumcision. Right, post the the covenant so it have passed down. Right, it brings about so many more questions about what's happening down in Midian. Like because, as you also said, Jethro seems like a pretty godly man. Like yeah. the, the what his advice is to Moses is brilliant um, in Exodus chapter eighteen. So, like it, there are so many more questions really that, that that get begged about the Midianites because so they're not circumcising, but then Jethro is incredible. Some of the stuff he's saying to Moses and like, yeah. what what is going on with this people group because um, they are direct descendants of Abraham post. Circumcision covenant, um, yeah, it's Abraham's next wife, Keturah, after Sarah passes, right? So, right, so okay, husband, father, son, shepherd of the flock. Um, now, on one level, after this moment, um, what's Moses's life going to look like? 
after some kind of God of the bush. It's going to be pretty messy for a while. <laughs> it's going to look different, for sure. And really hard. Like, oh, I thought my life was just, I'm resigned now. Like, I thought I had this great opportunity when I was in Egypt. It was like, son of, like, you know, pre, or, uh, a prince in, in the palace, and then, you know, all that's kind of behind me, and now I've, I made myself, like, a comfortable little life, where I'm sort of resigned to just being a shepherd, mm-hmm. and now it doesn't look like that's what I'm being invited into for my future. Yeah, seems like uh, his life was pretty chill up to this point, and now it's going to very much unchill. <laughs> For the last 40 to 60 years, my life has been what it is. You know, Whenever he goes down to Midian, whether he's 20 or 40 when he kills the Egyptian Nexus 2, for the last 40 to 60 years down to Midian, life has been pretty, for lack of a better term, predictable, right? Yeah. I, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a shepherd. I, this is what I do, this is who I am. And at 80 years old, I'm probably thinking he lives to be 120, so two-thirds of the way into his life. I'm probably thinking this is it, right? This is what my life is going to look like. This is how it's going to go. And and I can just kind of plan for what that looks like. Here's my 401k, right? Here's the retirement package. Here's the what the future is going to be. And now I'm being told all of that is different. This, this is going to be very different. Whatever I thought the rest of my life was going to look like, and while, yes, I'm still a husband, and yes, I'm still a dad, and yes, I'm still a son-in-law, and yes, I'm still a shepherd, now my flock is who? People. People. And not who? Bunch of animals. Yeah, like and a bunch of sheep. And I, sometimes I probably wish those yeah, people... They're sheep, man. <laughs> and they're just so much more trusting, you know, there's just like less words, less complaining. Yeah, but at the same time, if the people had been super compliant, God wouldn't have gotten all the glory He did through the plagues. Right. This is the this is the this is the tension. Right. People are people. They're not going to be sheep. You know. And my life as I know it is over. Right. This is part of the the, the tension of coming to Horeb, coming to the mountain of God, coming to death and destruction. My life as I know it is done. And it's not to say there's no echoes of what's been in the past and the future. There are. And this is the end of my life as I know it. And I don't know that I feel fine. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Wow. <laughs> sorry, it's right there. <laughs> um, and, and fascinating enough, of all the language that could be used to describe the mountain of God, the language that God uses to name the mountain of God is the mountain of death. Not, okay, right, for all the things we might think of the mountain of God, the verbiage that God would want to use to describe the mountain of God is going to be the mountain of God, death and destruction. And I want to suggest, right, in that death and destruction, there is also what? It's life. Uh, Say more, please. It's new life, right? Even in the, Paul writes about how we are... When we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Christ and raised to new life with him. And it's the death life, the ending of something, but the beginning of something better. Every new beginning is some other beginning's end. Yeah. We're in this constant movement of something dying, something new being born. And as Paul talks about, I am dying in this moment. We'll say a death to self. Yeah. 
a death to my life as maybe I conceived it or perceived it, and then being reborn and being brought into a whole new life. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, just still, you know, there's, he puts another analogy, Paul does. Whatever, it's like a new garments, new clothes. There's just like all sorts of different, you know, analogies that Paul uses about this, this very thing. It's a conversation throughout Scripture, that, I, and, and I think we get very sometimes, we only want to focus on the new. It's the new life, it's the new life, it's the new life, it's the new life. Right. And, and, it, and yes, it is, and... That's the putting away the old. Exactly. And if I don't recognize that that's there, as a real quick example that you probably both understand far better than I do, um, but sometimes in a study space, people share a story about how, like, when they were a parent, when they first become a parent, um... Almost everyone can see the new baby. You see the new life. It's literally manifested in, in the physical before us. And we go, ah, it's a new beginning. It's a new life. And then it's four weeks after um, the, the birth of the child. And I get a text. And it's Friday night. And it's 1130. And my friends want to go out. And my response is, can't. What? Why? Why can't I? It's 1130 on Friday. That actually happened to me with my second kid. Really? The first one, we kind of do whatever we wanted. Kid, <laughs> kid number two was like, oh, wow, this is not as easy and not as simple. And and so now even staying up late, it's like, people are like, I've had people like, why don't you, why don't you stay up or stay a little longer? It's like, well, because my kids are going to wake up at the same time no matter what. So I am screwed. <laughs> so I'm going to go home. And if I don't realize that that season of life has died. Yeah. Then I'm going out, and I might be doing stuff, and then I'm leaving my spouse at home to take care of the child, and that's not okay. That's not appropriate. That's not fair to them. That's certainly not fair to the child either, or the children, right? So like, if I don't recognize that there is an ending with this new person coming in, yeah. there is an ending. Right. My life has changed. Well, and I think, too, if you don't fully step into that, too, it's something you're talking about, like, something is going to die. Like, even if I hold on to, try to hold on to the past... Then it's like, am I bringing death forward into whatever could be the new life? Because, yeah. like, is is that my relationship that's being sacrificed? Is that my relationship with my spouse or my child being sacrificed because I'm I'm not allowing the other thing to die? Like, I think that sometimes these points of transition, you think, you know, if they're going to happen, that there's going to be a shift. No, whether or not we can recognize and move along with that shift. Yeah. It's like marriage. I mean, it's the same thing. When you get married, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff dies. But like for me, it was video games. It was one of those things. It was like I can't stay up and play video games all all night like I used to, or just every night like I used to. It's, she gets mad, and so I gotta put that aside. But it reminds me of uh, like Mount Sinai. It, was, it seemed like there was a marriage covenant being established yep. there, but the people held on to their old practices. And, Golden calf. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just the marriage thing is so, I think it's another beautiful example. And I don't, to point Jennifer, I don't know that we actually mark these deaths or these endings. Hmm. We, we're all, and please, I'm not trying to say to not celebrate the new beginning and the new life, the baby or the marriage. And can I also mourn the ending of something? Can I also recognize the death or the loss of something? There was a woman who studies with me out in Colorado who did actually, before her wedding, did a whole thing where she mourned the loss of her singlehood. And she actually dressed a certain way and and basically just had a space and a time to mourn the loss of 
I am no longer single. And she was incredibly excited to get married. This had nothing to do with her excitement. She was thrilled and overjoyed to be getting married. She loves the man that she gets married to. Right? And I am mourning the loss. That's, an old, that's a different phase now. Yeah. Exactly. And I just thought, how brilliant. Because yeah. if I don't do that, then I might be playing video games until 4 a.m. <laughs> all the time and going, there's no problem here because I'm, I'm still me. Yeah. Well, yeah, you are. And you're married. Right. And, and it's a different ask. It's a different on the table. And so just can we actually do things in our lives? Can we set apart time and space to go, yes, I'm going to recognize the ending of this as we also celebrate these new beginnings, these milestone moments in our lives? I think Moses shepherding the flock for 40 years was prep to shepherd a new flock, you know, and so oftentimes those old phases of our life are just prep for the new phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's mean that not like everything dies, right? It's not like, oh, right. you know, I'm, I'm totally not... I'm still I, using I a staff. I'm still, right. yes. yeah. I'm still a husband. I'm still a father. <laughs> right. Yeah, some of those pieces are still being brought forward, but there's still like a distinction. Right? Exactly. Certain things are ending. And, and as you said, I'm still a shepherd. I'm still using a staff. It's, and as Ethan, I love as you said that too, um, my dad has a phrase I think is so helpful in thinking about Moses' life in, in Exodus 2 before Exodus 3, right? You know, he's a shepherd of the flock. For decades in the wilderness, now he's going to shepherd the people through the wilderness for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And Dad likes to say, um, our lives are preparation for our lives. You know, what, what we were doing all that time down there, which might seem pointless and meaningless, and what was this endeavor for? And I've messed it all up. I was a prince in Egypt, and now I've just totally gone astray. It's like, this was actually wildly preparatory for the very thing God's going to then invite me into next. Well, and even like that, you know, obviously, like we talk about Moses, where is he's credited to have written down the first five books of the text, and it's like, what kind of um, preparation, like, did he receive in the palace in order to be able to be equipped to then do that? You know, mm-hmm. so I think, um, like sometimes things that feel like a diversion in our lives, I think God really, we can't always know the full purpose that they'll serve in the future. I love in thinking too about, Ethan, you talked about when the people come to Sinai, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really there's a covenant being made between God and the people. Yeah. And the people still hold on to the, some of those old ways, right? They're, they're still going on to dimensions or aspects of Egypt. They haven't kind of let those die. Um, and in that vein, it's fascinating to think that when they come to Sinai, they are actually literally coming to where? It's the same mountain. And that was one of the questions that I had too. Yeah, like what, it's interesting that, um, and and this is the first time that that we see a name change for a place. You know, I know that, like, doesn't Jacob? Renames a place, but we told why. Yeah. 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 But like, it's interesting that that concept too, like, because oftentimes we see like people's names shifting. It's like stepping into a different kind of association or identity. And I'm curious, you know, with the name shift from Horeb to Sinai, like, what is the shift that's happening there with the people in the place? Totally agree. We don't know what Sinai means. Do we? No, we don't. Okay. It's one of the, such a, like, to think about the importance and the pivotal nature of Mount Sinai. I mean, if you think about the Torah is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Right. Sinai is one of the most important places right. in the whole of the Torah. Like, as far as, like, location, it is way up there on the list of places. We don't know the meaning of the name. Like, it's just one of those that's got to be not clear. I, yeah. I'm with you. 100%. Sorry, go ahead. It's just, you know, with God, it just seems like he just obscured the name throughout all of history so that we would be like, huh? But maybe that's the point. 
I think it's totally purposeful. I am 100% with you because we do not know what this word means. That's, yeah. But, and that's where the names of places change, you know, and, and how, and what does it mean that God, like, whether it's an, an intentional obfuscation, it's just a, we do not know, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, what, it, and that that's this mountain and its name changed. Because like you said, when names change of places, usually we're told why. Like mm-hmm. Jacob renaming the place Bethel in Genesis 28. We're told why he does it. House of God, because he has this encounter with God. None other than the house of God. So it's the house of God. Okay. Why is it Sinai? And why don't we know what that word means? And, yeah. yeah. I don't know, but I also think, like, you know, that's where, like, there's this covenantal relationship, like, the first covenantal relationship, really, that's happening among people, not just with a person. Yeah. Um, that's happening at Mount Sinai. And I, when I think about, um, like, not boundarying the relationship that we have with God, I wonder, you know, sometimes when we name things, I think particularly in the English language, when we, when we name things, we noun them, like, we make them very static, and we boundary them in saying, like, this is the essence of what this person, this relationship, this place, like, we create form for it, and I wonder, too, you know, in that, like, unknowingness, it's sort of like, un- not knowing the boundaries of cannot language, cannot noun, the extent, the edges of what, co- like, covenantal relationship with God is. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. That makes me think, because it's something that I've thought about, but not like, I think that makes perfect sense. And if, especially when, right, the, the Lord of all the words that the Lord could choose to name the Lord's self with is, I will be what I will be. If you want to put limitation boundary on this, good luck. You know, I'm going to give you the name of a mountain. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, like don't focus so much on the mountain. Focus on like the relational exchange that's happening there. Yeah, focus on the covenant. Exactly. Yeah. Right, focus on the covenant. And, and in that thing, like, a dimension of trust and faith that there's going to be aspects in this that I am entering the covenant and I don't know. I don't know what this is all going to look like. And I'm not entering the covenant because this is all of exactly how it's going to be and I can know every last detail. That That's not the covenant, right? That's not the, the limitation being made on that. I think that's stunning to think and about. And there's even like the, there's language about the way that the Israelites are camped. Yeah. In relation to the mountain, that I think also leads a little bit to that idea of like if we were to hold the mountain as a representation of God, then that's where boundary was nature of God. But um, it, I mean, it's, there's like a very, very relational word that is um, used there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, go ahead. Right, yes, yeah, well, louder, please. Negat, <laughs> yes, um, which is, um, which is the word that is um used to is it to describe like the um the person that like the youth like it was pretty good it? yeah for and um so like this is we talk about like being helpmate or whatever but it's actually this word that's kind of like this this like um person that like it's opposite but it's almost like a compliment like there's like this relational i think it that more more encompasses what it is that um it's almost like this covenantal intimate other that like there's a wholeness and a completeness that happens with this other that it's not about um, like a lesser but it's more of like a relational and just to, to exactly what you're speaking to is Exodus chapter 19 uh, verse 2 um, having journeyed from Rephidim they entered the wilderness of Sinai and, and encamped in the wilderness Israel encamped there in front of the mountain when it says in front of the word they're translating as in front of in Hebrew is the word neged. Um, and neged is the word that shows up there in Genesis chapter 2 
when God says it is not good for the man to be alone, I will create for him a fitting helper. Um, the, the word uh, helper is, it's two words that's translated as fitting helper. Help in Hebrew, it's ezer konegdo. Ezer is the helper part. Fitting is the word konegdo. Neged is the root. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the exact same word that describes Exodus chapter 19, verse 2, how the children of Israel are encamped at the mountain. So when you talk about covenantal relationship like a marriage, even it's 100% being hearkened into, even in the language being used to describe mm-hmm. how the people are in relationship to the mountain and God here at Sinai are man and woman in the Garden of Genesis chapter 2. Mm-hmm. That there's this like forever otherness to them like you're, you're, you're um some people describe the concept of of, of um uh, naked as, as like when you encounter your forever other mm-hmm. that then kind of launches you into the sacred future um mm-hmm. it, it, it's that 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 and so and it's the same one that's used with um joshua when he meets the leader of the lord's host as he enters into the land like there is this and then to your point about launching into the sacred future like there's the the it, that word shows up at these like sort of transitional and progressive moments which i think is also interesting when you think about the the dual space of this mountain being held both as the mount sword where it's like death and destruction there is like something that is ending and to in order for new life to be brought forth and then also like that sinai mount sword and not marriage yeah i think it's important just to think, like hold that um because i think like sometimes you know also when we think about endings um we don't always celebrate and recognize the the new life that in which they're bringing and so I think it's, like you said, it's both. It's like holding space for grief to recognize the ending of something and to really, really understand what it is to be at those transitional points, but also to celebrate and step into, even, you know, like the Israelites stepping into this covenantal relationship, maybe not understanding the fullness of the yes of how they're stepping into that space, um, but the faith and the excitement of what it could be to celebrate the new life that they're bringing forth. Good. Well, this was uh, so fun, this conversation. Um, I hope that you guys, that if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to be thinking about um, how you're holding those spaces, maybe where, where, how those transitions have been. It's a Oh, wow. That's probably pretty quick. Yeah, really fast, really fast. Um, Yeah, I I think it's important for us to think about those transitional times in our lives. Like, have we fully embraced the death and fully embraced the life of some of those transitions? Um, so anyways, we invite you to continue to listen to the other podcasts that are on our site. Um, this conversation is very similar to the conversations that we have in our circles. And so we hope that you'll join us for a conversation. And um, we'll be excited to connect with you next time. Thanks so much for you guys for, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, yes thank you. <laughs>